Eagles Entertainment. With the 15th pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by Life Brand. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we've got the 400th episode of the Journey to the Draft podcast. It won't be a special edition of the show. Standard operating procedure here uh, on this Wednesday afternoon as I record this. We're going to start this episode off, though, with Pick 6, where my friend Greg Cosell makes his 2022 debut on the show. So I guess it's only fitting uh, that Greg, who I've done uh, hundreds of podcasts with, uh, he makes his appearance here on episode number 400 of the Journey to the Draft podcast. But Greg and I, we're going to start off with pick six, where we're going to pick six players every single week from now up through draft weekend that Greg just kind of that's kind of caught Greg's eye or that I just feel are interesting players to kind of talk about big picture when it comes to the draft process and the league and projecting college players to the next level and today we're going to focus in on a three pairs of players from the skill position so two running backs two receivers two tight ends excited to get into that with Greg there at the very top of the show afterwards we're going to go to our one of my favorite segments personally the blueprint where we're going to check in with Saints beat writer Nick Underhill does an outstanding job covering the Saints for NewOrleans.Football. And the purpose of that segment, again... We're just going to kind of dive into all different teams around the league and their team-building philosophies, what we've seen from them over the course of their drafting uh, under the current GM, under the current leadership. So we'll get into that there with the New Orleans Saints and Nick Underhill. It's a really fun segment. Uh, excited to get into that with Nick after pick six. After that, we're going to transition to Draft Buzz, where we've got a three-round mock draft that we're going to cover with Ben Fennel. Uh, some really good stuff there. We're also going to hit on sleepers in this draft, and it's a little bit of a topical item. We'll get into that there uh, in that segment. Let me wrap things up with draft mailbag as always a handful of really good questions from you at home we'll get into that at the end of the show speaking of which the best way to reach us is to head on over to apple podcasts or stitcher or spotify wherever you listen leave us a rating leave us a comment leave us a question leave us a mock draft leave us a big board whatever you want to list leave us we will address it here in an upcoming episode so if you've got a question about a specific prospect that's the place to go if you've got a mock draft you want us to break down head on over to a mock draft simulator your favorite one on the internet whichever one it is send it on the the, uh, Apple Podcast page, on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and we will address it here. We will break it down on an upcoming episode. That said, uh, let's get into this. Excited to start off episode number 400 of this podcast with Greg Cosell in Pick 6. Now it's time for Pick 6. All right, well, time to welcome in for the first time here in the 2022 calendar year, my friend, Greg Cosell. Greg, I just said at the top of the show a couple of times, this is our 400th episode of the Journey to the Draft podcast. So uh, uh, you're leading off here in the four episode number 400 of the show. Episode 400. Wow, that's a lot of episodes, Fran. That's, oh. uh, that, that's really good. Congrats. Oh, thank you. I would say uh, it's, it's good. I, like I said, I remember the first day uh, that we recorded there, the first episode that we recorded of this podcast and uh, certainly has come a long, long way. But uh, that is not the reason you're here. The reason you're here is to go through uh, six players. And you're going to do that every single week here on pick six from now through the draft. And uh, this week, I just wanted to kind of pick your brain on a couple skill position players uh, at each spot. So a couple running backs, a couple receivers, a couple tight ends. And what we'll always try and do is try and rope it into big picture topics and questions uh, around the NFL and projecting guys uh, at each of these positions. And we're going to start with a running back in Brees Hall from Iowa State, who uh, a lot of people would kind of peg as that running back one, potentially the running back two, uh, if you you know you might like Isaiah Spiller or Kenneth Walker uh, a little bit more. But I mentioned it first, before we get into to some of the big picture questions with Hall, interested to kind of just get your projection. How do you view him moving from the Cyclones to the NFL? Well, because you know I'm a big guy who makes lists, 
Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. He would be my number one running back if I made a list. Um, I, I really like his game a lot. I think he's got that really desirable combination of patience and decisiveness. He's very smooth. He's fluid. The one thing I thought he really added effectively this year, because last summer I watched a ton of his 2020 tape. And of course I watched a ton of his 2021 tape uh, just maybe in the last week or so. I think that he's a much more physical runner this year. I thought there was a much more powerful feel to his running. I thought he dropped his pads. He took on defenders and, you know, he is 217 pounds. That's what he weighed at the combine. So he's not a small back. And he does have a strong lower half. He's got really good balance and body control. And I think there's a lot to work with as a receiver. I think you you can see him running a more multiple route tree in the NFL, angle routes, wheel routes, even some H seam. Uh, we've seen him detach from the formation. So I really like Brees Hall as, as a prospect. Like I said, he would be my number one back if I had to make that choice. Yeah, and he's a guy. I mean, the the sample size isn't great with him as a receiver. He had you know the solid targets in the past game, but you saw some great catches. I mean, there was the one play uh, against Oklahoma down the left sideline. He made an outstanding catch, adjusting yeah. play, you know, on a throw, uh, a pass thrown behind him. Um, so he definitely has that ability. Now, I want to get back to one of the first traits you talked about, and that's his patience and his decisiveness. Because uh, Brees Hall, you know, coming into the combine, I don't think anybody would have expected that he was going to break four four because he is so slow and patient and uh, very like the the tempo approaching the line of scrimmage. It's you know people and people knock him for this. Is always oh, he's a little bit slow getting to the line. He's a little well, bit indecisive. Like so Le- I want to ask you: Is the like Le'Veon Bell in his prime? No doubt. And so that's why I want to ask you: Is how do you kind of gauge the uh, to say like oh a guy is patient versus indecisive? Because I agree with you. I'm I'm 100 with you in terms of uh, I think he's a really patient runner and picks his and is able to find those creases. But how do you kind of uh, you know find that difference there between those two traits? Well, what I would look at to to try to come to that conclusion is I look at two things. I look at defensive flow and gap fluidity because gaps change once the ball's snapped and you have to react to that. And then I look at the blocking scheme and how he might be seeing his, his blockers. So those two things would factor into how I look at it. You know, one of the things that I've, I learned from Merrill Hodge years and years ago when we started working together, and he said he had to learn this in the NFL because everything seemed faster, is he said when he first started, he would just run right up when he got a handoff. And he had to learn that you have to run with patience. You have to let things happen in front of you, even though the game is so much faster. And Hall seems to have a very innate feel for that. You're not going to have to teach him that. That's just intuitive and ingrained in the way he runs. Uh, so I look at defensive flow slash gap fluidity and then the blocking scheme. A lot of coaches will say you, know, you want to be fast through the hole, not fast to the hole. You want to be able to let those things kind of develop. Uh, and I think Brees Hall is a great, great example of exactly that. Another running back that I wanted to talk to you about uh, was Kyron Williams from Notre Dame. Now, uh, Kyron Williams, I talked about Brees Hall. He ran 4.39. Kyron Williams, I believe, was 4.65 officially uh, at yeah. the combine, which at, at sub 200 pounds, that's not a great look. But he's interesting because he also will bust off some big runs uh, for Notre Dame. I can uh, first play against Clemson uh, back in 2020. Uh, he had some big runs this this year against like North Carolina. He had a couple other big ones. So he'll, he'll run away from people uh, on the field. But I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on how Williams projects. Yeah. And we can talk about the difference between like time speed and play speed as well. 
Yeah, and I think Williams is another guy that has a very good feel for patience and decisiveness. I think he had a real good sense of fronts where unblocked defenders were. That's another thing that backs have to understand. Uh, and you know that, Fran, you know, backs have to understand, which is why they have to read fronts as well, because the last thing you want to do is cut right into an unblocked defender. So I think he has a very good feel for that. I think he's a refined runner. I think he has a professional feel to his running. He's nuanced. He's subtle. Um, and you like that a lot about Williams. The concerns would be his size which more than likely removes him from consideration as a conventional feature back. And despite the long runs, I think the tape showed that he does not really have a lot of juice and explosiveness. He's really an inside grinder with a physical competitive mindset and an outstanding feel for working in confined space. Um, but he won't be a volume runner in the NFL. I mean, the only way right. he could be a volume runner, and there were two backs that came to my mind, quite honestly, when I finished watching Kyron Williams. Okay. If he was on a team like the Chargers, I think you could see him as an Austin Eckler type because Eckler is probably going to get 170 carries as their number one back yep. because of the style of the offense they play. But to me, the player who really I think he could become like would be a James White type player. Sure. Because yep. Kyron Williams is a very, very good receiver. Another player that was detached from the formation. You saw him make catches that way. Uh, I think he's a really good receiver. You know, people forget because James White's been in the league for so long in a clearly defined role. They forget that he was a 1,000-yard rusher two yep. years at Wisconsin. So, you know, I, but I see Kyron Williams more that way than as a, a back who's going to carry the ball a lot in the NFL. And also, I mean, he's going to play on third downs because he's he's arguably the best pass protector of all he's the running backs in this class. When you said that, I really thought that he – I made a note that he had high-level effort and commitment, consistent technique. I mean, he was really good in pass pro. Greg, if you go back to – I don't know if you studied him over the summer. The the 2020 game against Clemson where they beat Clemson at home, uh, he, this was, he was a redshirt freshman. He was ridiculous uh, against that defense in terms of picking up that pass protection. He was outstanding. And the other nugget I love with Kyron Williams, uh, talked with a, a bunch of different Notre Dame players at the Combine. They all pointed to him as the unquestioned leader of that team, not just the offense, but of the team. Right. And for as a, as a redshirt sophomore, uh, you love those kind of intangibles. You love hearing about that. Uh, no, he's going to play in the league. I yeah. just don't – yeah, I just – you know, again, he's he has certain traits, and he's really good at those traits. Yep. But overall, he's just – he won't be a feature foundation type back. All right, so we'll transition to the wide receiver position now. And you talked about Kyron Williams and his frame and how that could limit uh, the overall uh, the role uh, moving to the NFL. You would say the same thing about Calvin Austin, the wide receiver from Memphis. Uh, he comes in at under five foot eight, 170 pounds flat uh, at the combine. And so uh, this is a, definitely a smaller player, 30 inch arms. I mean, a very compact, slight frame. But I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on what you saw from him on film. Uh, he goes 4-3-2 uh, at the combine in the 40-yard dash. And to me, like that 4-3-2, that shows up uh, on film. Yeah, and, and it's funny you say that because I, I made the note that he may well be the exception as you project right. transition him to the league. Um, because conventional wisdom would say that a 5-7, 170-pound receiver does not have a significant role in the NFL. But I think he may break that paradigm. I mean, he's got sudden explosiveness, pure speed. And I thought he had some surprising nuance to the details of the position, Fran. I don't know what you thought, but I didn't think he was just a straight line speed guy. I thought he was more than a track athlete playing receiver. I thought he defeated press coverage really well. I thought he had an understanding of how to use his vertical stem to attack and challenge receivers. 
Um, you know, he was predominantly an outside receiver in college. You would normally not think of a 5'7", 170-pound receiver playing on the outside, but the NFL has changed. Guys line up all over now. So while he's if he's not going to line up there on every single snap, uh, but conventional wisdom would say, oh, he's a slot receiver. I don't think that's the case. I think he can line up in multiple locations, both outside and inside, and be a dangerous weapon who can be a factor at all three levels. I mean, I, I, I thought Calvin Austin was really a fun guy to watch. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that really, when you look at uh, his pre-draft process so far, obviously, look, he's a redshirt senior, um, but two straight years of at least 1,000 yards receiving. He was really good this past year. Goes to the senior bowl, wins uh, uh, receiver of the week down there for the American squad. Uh, down there in Mobile, then goes to the Combine, has a great workout in Indianapolis, right? So just kind of put, stacking things together yep. uh, in terms of the pre-draft process. And you like to see that uh, with a lot of these prospects. Calvin Austin definitely fits that mold. Now, from one extreme, from a body type to the other, I want to go from Calvin Austin to George Pickens, a guy I know that you really like uh, from Georgia. Now, Pickens, we didn't really get to see too much this year because he tore his ACL uh, back in the spring. He did make it back, though, for their national championship run. He had a huge catch in the uh, in the conference title game. Um, you know, He finished five catches, 107 yards uh, on the year, but at 6'3", a shade under 200 pounds, uh, this is a guy that's your, your traditional prototype as like that X receiver. Yeah, I, I really like him. I went back and watched all his past targets from 2020 yeah. and a lot of his 2019 tape as well. And I really like George Pickens. I, you know, I, I think he's just being overlooked in terms of what people are talking about. He won't be overlooked by NFL teams. Yep. I think he's a high level prospect. I mean, he's got size. He's got length. He's got speed. He's got hands. He can make contested catches. He can get vertical. He played boundary X for the most part when he was at Georgia. I think he's your classic boundary X receiver. Um, he's long, smooth, competitive. He can run by corner. He ran by corners in the SEC. You mentioned the SEC championship game. I believe he also made a vertical catch in the uh, national championship game. Yep. Um, you know, so you know, I think George Pickens to me. You know, and again, we're not going to talk about this guy today, but for instance, I really like George Pickens as a prospect far more than I like Drake London. I think Pickens has far better traits. Yeah. And, I, and to me, like I wrote down watching him uh, a year ago, uh, like Cortland Sutton in terms of like that body type and a guy that can make plays vertically down the field. And I want to yeah. kind of follow up with this when uh, talking about big receivers, you and I have had this discussion uh, more in depth and more a, a lengthy discussion on other podcasts and other episodes. Um, but talking about big receivers, there's everybody's looking for these big receivers, right? But uh, not all of them work out. It's tough to kind of gauge who are the guys that are yes. going to be able to stick and who are the guys that won't. When you look at Pickens, what is it about him specifically that makes things like, man, like uh, of the big receivers in this class, you met, you, you referred to Drake London as well. Uh, what gives you the faith that, yeah, Pickens is a guy that I think is going to translate well and be able to stick. And it's funny you say that because I'll be totally honest. I've always had a little bit of trouble with bigger receivers. And, you know, right. I mentioned Drake London. We're not talking about him necessarily, but we're just talking organically now. And maybe he'll end up being a great receiver. And I know a lot of people really like him. Um, so what I struggle with is there's a guy that's not sudden, not twitchy, doesn't have great movement, but yet he's long. He makes a ton of contested catches. He certainly has some savvy to him as a route runner. You know, I, I struggle with those kinds of receivers. You know, when a guy when a guy's game is built on on high pointing the ball and making contested catches in the college at the college level in a conference that does not have a lot of great defense. I struggle with Is that going to happen in the NFL? And I don't really know the answer to that. 
So let's transition now to the tight end position. And uh, two guys I want to talk about. Both of them were down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. Trey McBride from Colorado State. Isaiah Likely from Coastal Carolina. Uh, slightly different skill sets. The body yeah. are pretty similar. Uh, McBride's just a little bit shorter. They both came in at 246 uh, in, in Indianapolis. Likely a little bit taller. He's six four and a half. But when you look at uh, McBride, I think it's kind of interesting because uh, look, when by the time we get to draft weekend, uh, the narratives around these prospects in the media don't matter all that much, right? Because once they're once they're drafted, that's what they are. Oh, this guy was a second round pick. Right, it doesn't right. matter what he was mocked at uh, over the summer. But what's interesting about what Trey McBride is. He was in pretty much every mock draft as a potential first round pick throughout the course of the process, even getting through the back end of the season. And that started to tail off a little bit. Um, you know, he came in a little bit smaller than people thought. Uh, he's not a dynamic athlete, uh, but he catches everything. He was all American. He wins the Mackey Award as number one tight end uh, in college football. I know you project him as a guy that can start in the league. And that's why I kind of want to talk to you about uh, just the understanding of what plays in the NFL, just because uh, the traits aren't always there, having an understanding of, well, there are a lot of tight ends that look like this in the NFL that start a lot of games. Yeah, and, and you know, you and I had spoken, I think, the other day. You know, when I finished watching McBride, or maybe it was while I was watching him, um, I, I thought the same thing you thought. You know, he's a good, smooth athlete, but not a dynamic, great athlete. Yep. So just for, you know, way by means of comparison, I pulled up Travis Kelsey's pre-draft measurables. And obviously, Kelsey is arguably the best tight end in the league, certainly top two or three, whatever your order is. Um, and Kelsey's pre-draft measurables were a little better in almost every area than McBride, which makes sense when you watch McBride's tape, because he doesn't come across as that level of athlete, but he's a good athlete. So, And the one thing he did a lot of at Colorado State was he lined up at that boundary X position, meaning he was the single receiver to the short side of the field on the backside of trips. And that's really important in today's NFL. I think he can do that in the NFL. So, you know, again, I think he's the most complete tight end prospect in this draft. He's competitive. He's a pretty good blocker as an attached tight end. I think that's a meaningful defining trait of his play. And while he's not an explosive weapon in the past game, like I said, not in the Travis Kelsey discussion, he's more than capable of working all three levels of the defense and lining up at boundary X. So to me, McBride is a really solid prospect, maybe not a special prospect. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing is that I feel like, uh, and we see this a lot with players that uh, are at the top of the draft, right? You would argue like Kayvon Thibodeau is a guy that would fit this description is uh Everyone is super, super high on him, super, super high. And then there's a little bit of buzz. Oh, maybe he's a little bit overrated. And then everybody's going, now it's the other side of the ledger. Oh, he's overrated and overrated. Well, it's always almost in the gray, right? It's always somewhere right. in the middle. Uh, and I, I do think that when you look at Trey McBride, that's a, that's a good football player. Uh, and, and here, I'll give you an example. And, and you'll probably remember where this player was drafted. What round? What round was Hunter Long drafted in last year? Hunter Long was a second-round pick, I believe. I can look that up, but I'm pretty and, sure he was a second-round pick. And to me, Trey McBride's a better prospect than Hunter Long. Yep. Yeah, he was. I uh, actually was an early third round pick. By okay, the, so there you go. So uh, that means McBride. Excuse me. That long went in what the top seventy five, give or take. He went, he went eighty one. Eighty one. Okay. To me, McBride's a better prospect than Hunter Long, and I liked Hunter Long, but I think McBride's a better prospect. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, McBride's a, a good player, and I think yeah. we kind of lose sight of that. Uh, now let's get to likely. Um, a player who likely uh, will get drafted a little bit later. <laughs> you were, you uh, were just waiting to I, say I've been that. waiting on that one. I had to go. Yeah, I know. That's why we did him last. There. Uh, <laughs> I had to, to throw it down. Uh, Isaiah Likely, interesting player, different skill set in that he was used 
more as like a big receiver, but Correct. also it's not that he wasn't used as a blocker because they found creative ways to use him as well. Uh, I'm interested to just kind of get your thoughts on, on how you project him and what you saw from him in functioning in that scheme. Yeah, I mean, I think he competed as a run blocker and, and he showed some force doing so. But and again, all tight ends at some point do have to block. But I don't think if you draft likely you're drafting him to say he's my attached tight end blocking tight end. You know, I don't think that's why you would be drafting him. Um, <clears throat> he lined up in multiple locations within the formation. Um, he was used as the motion tight end. So he brings position versatility to the next level. And that's become very important with tight ends. Um that, that trade's more in, in demand than ever before. Um, now, you know, it was interesting to me. I don't know how you felt, Fran. He was six, four and a half at the combine. Yes. I thought watching his tape, he didn't look six, four and a half. He almost right. looked compact. Did you feel the same way? Yeah, I was. It's it's deceptive in terms of how yeah. tall he is. Yes, I would agree. He almost has kind of a compact, low cut build. And I thought that that allowed him to make quick, decisive cuts. He didn't have any wasted motion at all. Um, and at times it made him look a little tight hipped and straight line. Um, but I think he had really good balance and body control. He's got really strong hands, yep. um, wide catching radius. He could make tough catches. Um, and I think that even though he's a little tight hip, I thought that he moved well. I mean, I, he caught a lot of long balls last year. Um, mm. You know, he's a receiving tight end to me. He's, you, like I said, you're not drafting him to be a blocker. Um, and another guy, I think he can line up at boundary X. He might be a little stiff, you know, to do that, but I think he can. It wouldn't surprise me to see him one, to be one of the first tight ends off the board in this draft. I mean, I, to me, McBride's the best, but likely has some vertical ability. And I think that that's always a factor in today's NFL. Yeah. And when you talk about uh, where, where is the, where do teams find value at that position? Who are the guys yeah. that pushed up the board a little bit, the guys that can impact the pass game uh, as receivers, yeah. uh, they might be seen as a little bit more viable. You know, a guy that I have compared him to in the past, Gerald Everett, he was a second round pick, right? And so you just see those kind of skill sets uh, tend to rise up the board a little bit. Guys that are more blockers will fall down the board a bit, but uh, likely keep, a, a great, you know, player. great point. Keep in mind too, that so many more run games now are shotgun based. Sure. There are teams that line up under center, but a lot more run games are shotgun based out of 11 personnel, a little more spread, different kind of blocking techniques involved. You're not necessarily lining up your tight end right next to a tackle and asking him to make drive blocks and base blocks. It's different kinds of blocks. So someone like Likely, who you're probably not going to say, hey, we're drafting him to make base blocks and drive blocks. He can do more angle blocks, leverage blocks, those kinds of blocks, as long as he's competitive and willing. And he is. Right. Exactly right. Well, uh, Greg, this was fun. We have six players up, six players down. Uh, we'll be back next week. We'll break the six more players down with you uh, right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. I'm grinding away, Fran. We'll have six more next week. All 32 teams are always under construction. How are they being built? Let's check out the blueprint. All right, so joining us this week here on the Blueprint on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand, Nick Underhill does an outstanding job covering the Saints for NewOrleans.football. You can check him out on Twitter at Nick underscore Underhill. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so let's talk through the Saints because I obviously a team that's very well entrenched in terms of their leadership. Uh, some turnover there with Sean Payton uh, moving on and, and retiring for now uh, here from coaching. But uh, when you look at their front office, 
Mickey Loomis is the executive vice president and the general manager of the Saints, obviously has a, a heavy hand in the New Orleans Pelicans as well. So a very unique role. Jeff Ireland has been there as the assistant GM since 2015. So I just want to know in terms of how you see it, what is the pecking order in terms of when it comes to draft strategy and setting the board uh, over the course of the, the entire season and into the offseason and who makes the calls on draft weekend? If you're looking at their draft strategy, who's calling the shots there? I think this year's going to be a little bit different prior to, to this season. Sean Payton had a, had a lot of control. He was kind of the voice, the final say. And, I, you know, he was kind of the overseeing, all-powerful arm of, of that uh, three-headed monster kind of in, in that draft room. I think now it'll probably be a little bit more balanced with, with more equal voices involved. Obviously, um, Jeff Ireland is extremely influential during draft time. They've really done a lot better since bringing him in and, yeah. and he revamped their whole entire process and, and really got them on track. And some of those strong drafts, I think kind of saved the franchise a little bit. So I think going into this year, um, Jeff's going to probably have a, a very loud and, and very heard voice. Dennis Allen's still kind of getting caught up to speed. I think he's a little bit behind in the draft prep. They were trying to hurry up and get him um, caught up on all the offensive players. He, he was familiar with the defensive guys, just being a defensive coordinator. So he's catching up a little bit. And then I think Mickey Loomis has kind of asserted a little bit more power over everything. I assume he has a little bit more of, of the final say on everything. And, and really his role, you know, with, with the Pelicans, you mentioned, I think he's a little bit more like, I don't want to say like an owner, but he kind of oversees everything over there and has people underneath him and, and they report to him. And with the Saints, I think he's kind of like in that more of like a, a presidential type role. I know he has a GM title, but I think that, you know, he, he kind of empowers people underneath him and, and it kind of leads back to him. Sure. And that's why it's such an interesting structure uh, with him having you know that presence with both of those franchises in two different sports. Uh, so with that in mind and knowing that it could be a little bit different, uh, I just want to go and we'll start the way we start every one of these conversations. Three trends for people to keep in mind as they're kind of putting together uh, who the Saints could target here in a mock draft. And we'll go number one. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you say you know, this is something to keep in mind here for the uh, for the New Orleans Saints? So if they stick to script, there's this weird little trend with relative athletic score. And I don't think they use relative athletic score to set their draft board or anything, but the things they value fit into it very cleanly. And the guys they take in the first round since Ireland got here, with the exception of one, have all had a score of nine or higher. And there's about 18 guys. If you go down anybody's top 50, that kind of fit that bill. Hmm. And if it holds true, it's going to be one of those guys. So they like size, they like speed, and if, if you can find a guy with a 9.0 uh, RAS score and, and it's on somebody's top 50 list, there's a good chance they'll be looking at him at 18. And that's the thing. Like you mentioned, it's not necessarily they follow the, the RAS explicitly, but it's they have some kind of weight-adjusted metric that they look at with athleticism, and, and that helps uh, to kind of narrow the playing field down. Yeah, it, it's definitely not like going to, to what's his name, Math Bombs Twitter right. and like seeing who he has. As on there, he does a great job with it. And, you know, it's just it's just those metrics fit in. And if you're going to ask me number two, it leads into number two. Yep. They prototype everybody in the league. And the way they do that is they look at the starters across the league. They take their average height, weight, speed, arm length, hand size, 40 times, all that stuff, put it together and they get an average. And then they they set they set a minimum standard and they don't they don't like exceptions. If guys don't fit into this, there has to be a very good reason to take him. If it's a five, nine receiver, he better be off the charts everywhere else and, and do a couple things exceptionally well, or, or he just won't be on their draft board. So, um, it, you know, a lot of outliers, it, it's something that I would stay away from is, you know, I look at guys 40 times or other things. Of course, there's a few outliers that they've drafted that have done 
really well. Mike Thomas, for instance, I don't think he fit their minimum standard of 40 time when they took him in the second round and he was great at everything else. So they made an exception there, but mm-hmm. they have to have very good reasons to do it. I love that. And that's another example. When you look at the athletic scoring with the body typing that uh, Mm -hmm. teams are just trying to, again, whittle down. Every team starts this process in in May and April with thousands of names on their board. And and what these things do is try to narrow that list down. So I'm glad you kind of hit on those two points. uh, One and two. What's number three for you on your list? Jeff Ireland loves guys from big schools, power conferences, except defensive ends from small schools. And that's probably just reflective of, of their value and that positional value of, of defensive ends, getting one in the back half of the first round is, is hard. So you got to look at San Antonio state or Houston or, or places like that. But typically they like to draft guys early from big schools and, and power conferences. I love that. And it, again, just kind of looking at the way that they stack the board again, that's another tool to be able to use and say, all right, we want guys that are doing this, uh, Pure, you know, good body type, good athletic score from a power five competition. That's a good way to kind of set here's the, here's the board for us. Um, when you look at uh, the way that they've kind of put this team together, are there any schools at the college level you say like, and the one comes to mind without even thinking about it, but are there any schools you're saying like, yeah, there, there are a lot of guys from this roster or they're from this college program that show up here on the same step chart. Yeah. You were about to take it from me, Ohio state. I mean, they, they love guys from Ohio state, free agents, yep. rookies, like whoever that that's, that's definitely one of their go-tos. There've even been some guys that, that were on the staff that have went on to, uh, to work there in, in their scouting departments and that. So there seems to be good communication, good back and forth there. They have good connections with Alabama. There haven't been a ton of picks from there, but I, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of links back and forth with that program too. So there's good information there. The one school, oddly enough, that they don't really draft from very often is LSU. And yeah. it's just one of those weird things. I don't think it's it's a preference or anything, but, um, you know, that, that's just one of the schools where they kind of stay stay away from. And, you know, the fan base is is always hating on that. But I do just think it's, it's a little bit of a weird coincidence there. Yeah, the, the Ohio State one, for sure, has always stood out, especially over these last few years. And you mentioned draft and free agency uh, that shows up. Uh, looking at this team now going into 2022, what do you think are the three biggest needs uh, for this franchise? Obviously, a little bit, again, the, the turnover aspect is big. I don't know when you're going to publish this, so this answer might be outdated. Right. By the time yeah. Quarter, quarterback is is a huge one. They get, they got to figure something out there. Um, moving beyond that, wide receiver, I think they need two or three of them at this point. Michael Thomas is coming back. There's a lot of optimism about where he's at health-wise. Mentally, he seems to be really checked in. I've heard a lot of really positive things about just his outlook this offseason, but after him, I mean, it, it's wide open on that depth chart. So they need a few more guys there. And the last one, number three, you know, I think it's it's kind of open and depending on what happens in free agency, it could be offensive tackle. If Tron Armstead leaves, there's still a little bit of talk about him coming back. Um, it could be running back. You know, they, they need somebody to, to fill in. Alvin Kamara is probably going to have a suspension to start the year. And Mark Ingram, his backup is getting older. So a succession plan would, would be prudent there. They could use a tight end. Um, but the roster after those, those couple major big holes remains pretty strong. Defensively, they don't have a whole lot of needs. They just got Marcus May to replace Marcus Williams. So yep. they should be rolling there. So I think they're pretty wide open after, after the first couple of needs. So with that in mind, with with those three me, uh, needs in tow, uh, everyone always talks about need versus best player available. When you look at the Saints, uh, and obviously it depends on where you're at from a franchise standpoint and a team building standpoint, but uh, where do you feel like they land when it comes to need versus best player available? Where do you think they sit at right now here in the spring of 2022? 
So they would tell you that they're a best player available team, but I, I don't, I don't believe that if you look at the way they draft, I think, I think it's truly a combination of, of both And there are times they go into the draft with open needs and they address those open needs very early in the draft. Uh, Cesar Ruiz being an, an example of that or uh, Marcus Williams in, in 2017, another example. So I, I think it's kind of, you know, both prisms meeting at, at, a, at a point where it makes sense for both. And, the way they set their board too is that they like to set clouds of players around their picks and they have a handful of guys they want in those spots. And then I think within that cloud, it's okay, which one makes sense, which one helps us. So it, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of both, but I've never seen them, you know, draft a linebacker when they have four linebackers already, you know, it's just, it, it's never really that. So it, it's a, it's a little bit of both. So when you look at the Saints and where they're at now in the first round, are there players that are being mocked to them that you think make a lot of sense based off some of the, the parameters that you've laid out? Yeah, Chris Olave is is the one that just screams Saints. He he's not quite uh, you know the the RAS score doesn't really work out for him, but he it feels like he has everything else. Um, and that would really be the reason he doesn't hit it is kind of kind of some of his size measurements just just weren't there, but. I think that he would be a good player for them. Obvious fit, um, major need would be addressed. And uh, Kenny Pickett's another one where, you know, depending on what happens with them at, at quarterback, even if they were to, you know, end up with a Jameis Winston or, or somebody else, I think getting somebody in the pipeline to, to develop them, that's another guy that's been mocked uh, quite a bit that that seems to, to make some sense. Interesting. And then on the other side of the coin, are there guys that are, you know, frequently mocked to the Saints or just like, yeah, I don't quite see that uh, for all the different reasons we talked about? You know, honestly, I, I, I don't because – a lot of the guys getting mocked to them, like their needs are so obvious and so wide open. You know, sometimes people are mocking players with him. It's like, they're not going to do this. This, this right. doesn't make sense. And this year it's like, I think everybody can look and see, oh, they have no wide receivers and they don't have a quarterback. So it seems yep. to always be one of those two. And at this point, after watching this offense last year, any wide receiver you put in that spot, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> like just get somebody because you can't go out there with, with nobody at that position again. Makes sense. So, so final parting adv advice for anybody uh, putting together a mock draft, you're picking for the Saints, middle of round one, uh, just any kind of parting words there? So uh, just the way they always do things. Yeah, I, I would say go quarterback or wide receiver, depending on what happens in free agency, but then ignore that because they always just seem to draft somebody on the offensive line in the first round <laughs> or defensive line. So stick to the trenches, I guess, would be the the real advice there. But I, I think they do got to go receiver. I, I don't think you can really go wrong with, with mocking them a wide receiver. It makes sense. Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining us here on the Journey of the Draft podcast. Again, everybody, make sure you go follow Nick on Twitter at Nick underscore Underhill and check out his work at NewOrleans.Football. Nick, thanks so much once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, now let's transition to Draft Buzz as I welcome in my friend Ben Fennell. And Ben, uh, this week, Daylight Savings Time. Uh, and obviously it's a huge topic of conversation, not because just because of the spring forward, but also uh, some potential new laws coming into play, you know, Congress voting on things, getting involved. So I was all right. Daylight saving. Are the right time. podcast here? Yeah, no, I don't <laughs> want to dive too deep down that path, but a great time to bring up sleepers because everybody's you know, looking for that extra hour of sleep that we lost over the weekend. So uh, and I especially wanted to have this conversation with you. Because you and I have had so many funny discussions about what the what does it mean? Does it mean like a sleeper? Like there's lots of definitions for this term. So I kind of wanted to look at some of those, each of those definitions with you and have you kind of provide a couple examples of each. And so uh, if you ask anybody, oh, who's who's your favorite sleeper? I think the first thing that kind of comes to mind, if you're just taking it by the, the broadest sense of the term is 
someone you're just higher on than everybody else. Who's a, who's a guy that you think will outperform his likely draft slot? You just feel like I'm a little bit higher on this guy. Well, yeah, sleeper can mean a lot of different things. And for people that study the draft year round, there aren't many sleepers this time of year. You're well aware of everybody. If you played at a power five school, you're certainly aware of them. Um, they're on your Saturday TVs, you know about them. So there's football everywhere. There's D2, there's D3, there's NAIA, there's college, or excuse me, Canadian football. There is football absolutely everywhere. So sleeper has a different definition to everybody. Um, but here, a couple of guys that I'm a little bit higher on, I think are going to outperform their current buzz and trajectory, uh, trajectory as a prospect. One is UCLA receiver Kyle Phillips. Who I think is just absolutely outstanding. He had a really strong week at Shrine practice uh, in the all-star game circuit, but he's a guy that just plays a position that isn't highly coveted by the NFL. The possession receiver, the slot receiver, the chain mover, the sharp route runner with not a whole lot of vertical juice, not a whole lot of yards after catch juice. These guys don't typically go very high in the draft. We could think more recently to Hunter Renfro, went in the fifth round. That's probably a similar ballpark to Phillips. But the yesteryear slot receivers that he embodies, the Danny and Mandolas, Adam Humphreys, Cole Beasley's, were all undrafted types. Not to mention, Kyle Phillips is a heck of a blocker. They use him very creatively, some in line, where he's almost serving like a tight end as a pin down, some defensive ends. They have some lead blocking concepts for him. He's 5'10, 185. The fact that those even exist. In Chip Kelly's playbook, tell me that he's a certain type of guy out there. Yep. He's a really tough player. So I think he's a guy that's going to go in round five, round six, maybe even round seven, and be a mainstay receiver three or four for an offense. I like that. And in that offense, you better be able to block because of you know the, how much they want to be able to run the football, all the bubble screens. I mean, you, you've got to be able to block uh, in that offense with Chip Kelly. Uh, who's, another, who's another guy that kind of fits that bill? So another guy that I think is just on the right path to exceeding his draft selection spot, and that's running back Pierre Strong out of South Dakota State. I just find him to be in the major tier behind the first wave of running backs. So, you know, whether it's the Brees Halls and Walkers, and then you get into the James Cooks, and there's some guys of really good size, and Brian Robinson, and Hassan Haskins, and Damian Pierce that are all 220. Pierre Strong's hanging right there around 200 pounds, exceptional work out there uh, in, in Indianapolis running in the four threes. He catches the ball very well. It's just not a highly coveted position of running back that you're going to spend high capital on. He's also kind of caught in a very deep through the middle of the draft running back class. I think he's going to be a day three player and make a lot of plays for an offense. I don't know if he just starts off as a third down back. Maybe there's an injury or two. He ends up being a feature back running back careers are very hit and miss and a lot of it's situation and luck and uh, circumstances. So I think Pierre Strong is a guy that's going to be a day three player that's probably going to be on a lot of fantasy teams this fall. So look out for Pierre Strong out of South Dakota State. Do not scout the helmet. They are a really good program. I don't want to get ahead of myself because we're going to break down the running backs next week with Dane, but I wrote down two names while I was studying them. Uh, I wrote down um, uh, who's the kid that went to Maryland that ended up with the Jets. Um, uh, I'm forgetting his name. I also wrote down Philip Lindsay, uh, Ty Johnson is what I'm Ty Johnson, yeah, Ty, Ty Johnson, uh, with the Jets, but then also Philip Lindsay, uh, coming out of Colorado. He ended up going undrafted. Ty Johnson was uh, a late day three pick, but uh, both guys uh, found you know a modicum of success. Certainly, Philip Lindsay uh, became a starter uh, with the Denver Broncos. Who's uh, the third example for you? So we talked about it a little bit earlier in the week with Dean as we we're previewing the O line class. I think there's a lot of good centers out there. I don't want to 
go too deep into this, as we talked about James Empey at BYU and Doug Kramer at Illinois and Brock Hoffman at Virginia Tech. I think these guys have starting traits to play in the NFL. And there's a very good chance none of them get drafted. But I bet they make NFL rosters. I'm just not sure where or what type of capital, but they look like NFL players. I think there's a lot of sleeper centers out there. And two guys on defense, Fran, that I just want to touch on that I don't know where they're going to get drafted. Probably day three, probably around five, six, maybe even pushing further. But their athleticism, their versatility, I think just has tremendous value. And that's Jesse Lucchetta at Penn State and Darian Beavers at Cincinnati. Two guys that were special team stalwarts in their career, played a variety of positions. And I think right now they're a ball of clay. And that can hurt guys as well as far as where they go in the draft. They maybe don't have a through and through position. That's why they slide to the back end of day three, maybe priority free agent. And they could have a completely different career path based on where they go. So I think they're guys that can exceed their draft selection spot just based on the fact that they don't have a true position at the moment, but I think they can do a lot of different things. They're high floor players and they're very athletic for their sizes. So Jesse Lucchetta, Darian Beavers, I bet they're better pros than maybe their draft spot indicates. Yeah, both guys uh, kind of Sam linebacker prospects, Lucetta from Penn State, Darian Beavers, uh, Cincinnati. Classic Ben Fennel move, by the way. I ask you to name three players and you name seven. Just like I don't want to make sure I throw that out there. Uh, the next kind of – I have 20 written now. I'm yeah, I can't here. wait. It's can't like wait to see what else we've got here. Uh, we'll go a little bit faster uh, through the rest of these groups. Uh, a player at a bigger school who, for one reason or another, was not as productive. And, and these are the ones I feel like uh, you always have the most uh, problem with when someone brings up a guy that played at – Alabama or at Oklahoma or at Clemson. Or how can you call this guy a sleeper? But the, the argument would be made, oh, well, this guy, you know, he had bad quarterback play or uh, this guy, they they constantly changed the system. So, you know, maybe his best football's ahead of him. Uh, I didn't like how he was used in the defense or he had an injury, right? So lots of ways you can look at a bigger school prospect and say, all right, well, maybe he'll be more productive once he reaches the NFL. That's why you would categorize him as a sleeper. So who kind of fits uh, this kind of mold for you in this class? All right. These are really good conversation topics, Fran, but it's not quite full into the deeper or excuse me, the sleeper world here. All right. So this is a really good conversation. Right. Who's a guy at a bigger school, maybe not as productive as his skill set of traits, not necessarily a sleeper, but more of a, you know, a, a victim of circumstance or maybe something happened. So the first one that comes to my head would be Kevin Austin Jr. at Notre Dame, who I think tested exceptionally well at the Combine. Played just a little over 800 snaps, I believe. It's four or five years at Notre Dame. Fell into the doghouse early with Brian Kelly. Never quite got out. Really just a one-year player. Uh, but he's a guy that I think has better football and better days ahead of him. But I think uh, you, there you, with you Kevin Austin the Jr. Argument, Notre Dame. You, you, dude, you could say like, oh yeah, like Kevin Austin's a sleeper, right? Like he can go day three and you like he's got that A talent that you would say, oh, well, he could be an NFL starter. Yeah, certainly so. So he might fit the bill there. I don't like picking a Notre Dame receiver <laughs> as a sleeper, anybody on Notre Dame's roster as a sleeper. It's really right. tough to be at a program like that and fall into the sleeper conversation. Now, a guy that may be a sleeper okay. because of that lack of production, in my opinion, could be defensive end Alex Wright from UAB. Yeah, He's sure. a guy that did not have the high sack total. But when you put on his tape and look at the QB pressures and the hurries, he was getting home. and He was winning quite often. And sometimes those sack totals are hit or miss, you know, based on the teams you play and then just getting the ball out. And it doesn't always materialize. So put on the tape. Alex Wright's a really good player with good size, can win a variety of ways as well. 
Now, this one's tough, Fran, because I need to talk about some Georgia Bulldogs here. And there's no way there's a Georgia Bulldog sleeper out there. But there's a lot of guys that have some interesting situations. So first, on the offensive side, we all know James Cook, kind of the positionless scat back slot receiver that wasn't a feature player in the offense. You know, they always had the big back back there to establish the run game with Samir White and you know, all those other guys in the previous years. And they have the big receivers on the outside. James Cook was always that change of pace guy, you know, the, the guy to get matchups and didn't really have the snap total or the production you would think, but he may have his best days ahead of him if he goes to the right offensive coordinator. And the defensive side, conversations everywhere. I mean, Channing Tindall, Fran, didn't have a start in his college career. Right. It's bizarre, yes, but he's a very interesting player with a lot of tools and upside. And then going on to Trayvon Walker and Devontae Wyatt and just how they were used. These weren't guys that were given green lights to just rush the passer and get after it and get vertical in the backfields. A lot of exotic schemes on third down with post-snap movement, slanting, twist, moving out of the way so Nakobe Dean can blitz the A-gaps and use his speed. Trayvon Walker, Devontae Wyatt, do not scout the box score and their QB pressures in production uh, as far as getting sacks and getting after opposing quarterbacks because that's not what the scheme did for them. So a couple guys at a big school, maybe not as productive in the box score, Trayvon Walker, Devontae Wyatt, Channing Tindall, James Cook, Pretty crazy to list some bulldogs in this category, but uh, it's also interesting that so many people fit this bill. But I think you, if you like juxtapose like Channing Tindall with Jermaine Johnson, the pass rusher from Florida State, if Johnson never transferred, if he stayed at Georgia, he would have been in this bucket. We would have said, oh, Jermaine Johnson's got no no stars. Uh, you know, how many sacks did he put up in his career? He wasn't super productive. But we see what the guy can do with opportunity. And so that's why you would categorize a Channing Tindall uh, as a sleeper. And it's funny you bring that up because – Look at some Georgia Bulldog message boards or just maybe if anyone has tweeted at you. They think Nolan Smith was a huge disappointment. Mm. He was an number one player out of high school, just didn't have the sack totals. Put on his tape. He is an awesome football player. Just how they're used at Georgia isn't as conventional as all the other quarterback hunters around college football. You're typically a run defender first. You got to set some violent edges. And then you're used very creatively on third down. Um, you also have to consider they had some Adam Andersons, they had some Aziz Oljolaris, they had some other guys that warranted production and playtime as well. So um, I've had plenty of guys in the Georgia world tell me Nolan Smith hasn't materialized or been the player they hoped. I think it's just how they're used, though. So I think we all saw this past year national championship game, just the player Nolan Smith can be. No doubt. All right. Well, let's get to the, the next category of a sleeper would be a guy who, who barely played. All right. So uh, this could be at a big school. This could be even at a group of five school, but a guy that was a one year starter, um, you know, wasn't on like the biggest stage in the world. You know, maybe he was at, at like an Alabama or an Oklahoma, but since he only played for one year, he kind of flew under the radar a little bit. And now uh, a team might be able to get a bargain. So I would categorize a guy like this uh, as a sleeper as well. Uh, is there anybody that kind of comes to mind when you think of that one as well? Yeah. One of the first ones that I think about is Ole Miss running back slot receiver, Jerry and Ely. It was just over a thousand snaps in three years, just buried behind Elijah Moore, not a true receiver, not a true running back, actually dabbled with some baseball as well and uh, really split his attention as far as some other sports. He's a guy that just didn't play a whole lot in his career at Ole Miss, but has a lot of upside, a lot of athleticism, a lot of ability in a similar package to a James Cook in that, you know, he can really be an interesting weapon at the next level. Level. Everybody's looking for that slot back that can contribute catching out of the backfield, 
also be used in matchups. It just didn't feel like Ole Miss ever really got a grasp on how they wanted to use him. Uh, so he's a guy that hasn't had the production, but a lot of upside, in my opinion, Fran. I'm not sure if you watched Ely. Yeah, I have. And I think that that's the, that's the kind of player that I'm definitely kind of hinting at in this profile. Another guy in the SEC that, uh, that to me, like when I was writing this out for the rundown, like Jalen Armour Davis from Alabama, another guy that like perfectly fits this mold, uh, you know, came on, he was injured early in his career, came on, started this year. But look, I, how often do we go into a draft where you have a, a pretty athletic corner from Alabama playing for Nick Saban? That's mm-hmm. like he declares for the draft early. And people aren't really talking about him. He's not really talked about in the day two conversation even. Uh, so Jalen Armour Davis, another guy, I don't know if he's on your list, but it really kind of, uh, as, as I was typing this out, getting ready to hit send, I was like, this, this is who this category is for. Well, a player that barely played. So the first thing I did was control find and search sophomore on my whole right. sheet. Got so it. I want to find all those red shirt sophomores, which Jalen Armour Davis Redshirt sophomore, one-year player. He's a perfect one for this bill. But there's some older guys as well yep. that were really just one-year players. So not that they got on the field right away, but maybe had to wait their turn. I think a lot of people realize Kirby Joseph, just a one-year player as well. He did have a couple spot starts two years ago. This is really his only full-time year uh, at Illinois. Mario Goodrich, another guy. You get these big programs like Clemson, Georgia, Alabama. Sometimes they thrust those five stars right on the field. Sometimes they're buried because there's other five stars they got to play behind. So we all know the corners that were out there at Clemson the past couple of years, with AJ Terrell and X, Y, and Z. Mario Goodrich, just a one-year player out there. And his yep. best days may be ahead of him based on how he was used in Brent Venable's scheme. Very unique kind of usage for the defensive backs out there. So Kirby Joseph, Mario Goodrich, Jalen Armour Davis, a couple guys haven't been on the field a ton. But the NFL is certainly interested, and I think their best days are ahead of them. All right, so I want to just keep you honest. You're doing a better job here as we go. We've got, we got four categories. You did seven names in the first one. You did one, <laughs> two. You did six names in the second. We got you down to five for the last one. Let's see if we can keep you to three here. The last one, and this one, like when I say uh, who's a sleeper, this is where your mind immediately goes, and that's like the small, small school off the beaten path. Like, oh, this is one that no one else is talking about. So I want to give you the floor here. Who are some really small school prospects? You're like, yeah, like this guy is a true sleeper in your mind. I will mention as many names as I want, Fran. I don't know (laughs) if we need to pay our stenographer extra or if she's getting overtime, Uh, but small school. Now we're digging into some real sleepers here. And I always love looking at defensive backs. Because I think corners and safeties are all over the place in this country, in Canada, international, that can play, that have speed, that have ball skills. I mean, we saw a bunch of names of schools at the Combine that maybe opened some eyes. We saw Missouri Western. We saw Fayetteville State. We saw Florida A&M and Marquise Bell. So we've seen some schools that are a little off the beaten path and Dallas Flowers at Pittsburgh State, to Kobe Durant at South Carolina State. Two guys I want to mention real quick, Fran. Bryce Watts, UMass. Took a couple steps to get there. Had a little cup of coffee at North Carolina, Virginia Tech. He's yep. a flirting with a 4-2 type of player. Very strong, firm defensive back. Really tough kid out there. He's a guy I think the NFL is going to be really interested in, especially his contributions to special teams. And a guy right in our backyard that I just tweeted out a clip this morning because a buddy saw him at his pro day, tested well, crazy production on the ball. That's Villanova's Christian Benford who's played a lot of ball out there, immediately was a star as a freshman. It's been on the first team, uh, all-conference, I think, every year since. Fran, he had seven picks and 18 PBUs this past year mm. in a variety of ways. Some press bail stuff, true press man, off coverage, 
uh, a lot of cover two stuff, some zone concepts, really interesting. His ball production came in such a variety of ways. So small school off the beaten path, go right to defensive backs because there's a lot of talent out there across this country. Uh, a, a lot of ways to cut it when you're talking about, uh, you know, sleepers and what is the definition of a sleeper? And hopefully, uh, what do we give you? A couple dozen names there uh, for Ben to, to, for you to be able to break down. I really appreciate uh, you humoring me with this discussion. Um, <laughs> let's get to the, the last part of the segment. We try and do it every week. Our mock draft roundup. We're going to pick a mock draft and just kind of go through some of the big takeaways. And this week, we're going to go over to Ryan Wilson's latest mock draft over with CBS Sports, a three-round mock draft. So uh, we're going to react real quickly to some of the takeaways from round one. Uh, namely, to start things off, the three Eagles picks. We'll start at number 15. Linebacker Nicobe Dean, who was in the news today, Georgia's pro day here on Wednesday. We're going to get to that here on the back end. Uh, here's the blurb from Ryan. This continues to be a popular pairing in our weekly mock drafts, partly because the Eagles could use a Nicobe Dean in the middle of their defense, even if historically they don't draft off-ball linebackers in round one, in part because Dean was so dominant during the 2021 season. And while he played on the best defense in the country, don't be fooled, he did not ride on the coattails of a dominant Georgia defense of line. Dean was a huge reason for the success. There are questions about his size and how he translates to the NFL, but his tape tells a different story. So uh, Ben, to me, the big news, I, I almost want to get your thoughts here. Uh, Nicobe Dean did not participate at the combine, didn't do any workouts, didn't do any of the uh, the drill work, anything. Goes to the pro day and only did positional work, did not do any testing. Now, uh, there are mixed reports about if he's going to plan to do that uh, at a later date. Some people saying, yeah, he's going to be planning. He's fighting a pec strain. He's going to try and do a full workout as we get a little bit closer to the draft. But there's also whispers that he might not. And so uh, I'm just to kind of get your thoughts on how you view uh, Nicobe Dean and that decision, you know, that inability, I guess, to be able to work out and kind of get on the watch for teams. Does that move the needle at all for you in any direction? No, not particularly. You know, he has 1,400 snaps played for the University of Georgia. I think there's plenty of high-level football to study as far as his on-field ability. Some of these linebackers, I almost rope into the quarterback conversation, Fran. I need to talk to them. I need to get them on the whiteboard. I need to figure out what their assignments were, what they were asked to do, what their responsibilities were, what their education is on their scheme, what their film-watching habits are. I just tweeted out this morning all my different traits that I want out of linebacker prospects while I was studying the Kobe Dean. I don't need him to run a 4-3. And I got news for you. I don't care if he runs a 4-9. There's enough tape to figure out what type of player he is, what type of projection he's going to be. And then I just need to talk to him, which these linebacker positions are very cerebral. Your intelligence, your football intelligence, your film-watching habits, your anticipation, getting other people lined up, your understanding of your scheme. It's a lot of questions to talk to him just in a, uh, you know, in a meeting setting. So I think getting in front of these kids at these pro days is equally, if not more important than what we see on the field. Now, obviously what we see on the field, that's what we're watching. That's what we see on the highlights. That's what we'll be on sports center late in the day and watching them do the drills, but there's a lot more value at the combine and the pro day than just what we see on the field. So Nicobe Dean, that doesn't really bother me too much. Especially it's like the, uh, you know, this gets into some of the things we've talked about with other traits and other positions in the past where like, uh, you know, it's almost like hand size. Like it's not for quarterbacks. It's not a problem unless it's a problem. When I, and I look at the uh, Kobe Dean, I don't look, look at him and say like, oh man, I just love his athleticism and his speed. Like, yeah, he makes plays in the flat. He makes plays sideline to sideline. He plays fast. I get that. And I don't think he would test well. I just watch, just watch him. I don't think that he's that kind of explosive athlete, but uh, what attract or what attracts you to Nicobe Dean I mean, he is a plus 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 in every intangible category. Like that, that's a, anyone you talk to that has been through that school. They're like, yeah, like 
on the a team full of alphas, like he was the guy, right? Like, you know, and that's, and I think that's what uh, is going to be attractive for teams uh, about N'Kobe Dean. But um, all right, next one here. This one's from Ryan. Again, the Eagles pick number two, 16th overall. Uh, this is the Colts pick. Pass rusher David Ojabo. Now this comes before the the uh, the Eagles signed Hassan Reddick in free agency. We're going to get into that here after the blurb. Here's what Ryan had to say: Ojabo is not a finished product. He didn't come to the states until 2015, and that's what makes him so exciting. He was incredibly disruptive for Michigan last season, and he's only going to get better once he understands what he's supposed to be doing, which won't take long for the academic. All American. So, uh, Ben, I'm interested to kind of get your, you know, we've talked a lot about David Ojabo over the course of the last few months as his star began to ascend over the course of the college football season. But my question for you is, you know, the player that Hassan Reddick is, we, we talk about uh, what his skill set is. How would that go with a guy like David Ojabo? And I know this mock draft came out, uh, I believe, before the Hassan Reddick signing. So it's not that I'm saying that, oh, this is a bad pick. But now knowing what we know about how the Eagles have built that room, how would you feel that Reddick pairs with Ojabo uh, in terms of a, a pass rush plan as a defensive front? Yeah, I think two really exciting and athletic pieces, obviously, for Jonathan Gannon to uh, use at his disposal. I thought we got a little sniff of some of that creativeness. Uh, with the way he used Jannard Avery last year and that hybrid kind of Sam role. And I think guys like Ojabo and Hassan Reddick maybe have some unconventional characteristics as far as just in comparison to the traditional defensive end. But there is a lot of versatility and there's a lot of creativity uh, as far as using them as well. So I think Reddick and uh, Ojabo are very exciting, explosive players. And I know Eagles fans are saying, What about the the run? What about the early downs? Remember, there's still Brandon Graham and and Josh Sweat out there as well. Right. So I love continuously adding to the edge rushers, getting younger, getting more explosive and finding guys to win in different ways. And I love the versatility and the, you know, the different types of bodies that they have in this defensive end room. All right, let's go to the third pick here in this mock draft for the Eagles. 19th overall, cornerback Trent McDuffie. Here's the blurb from Ryan. Even though McDuffie balled out on the outside for the Huskies this season, we get Tyron Matthew vibes when we watch him. He has the athleticism to line up anywhere, and he told us at the Combine that he can do just that at the next level. In Philly, he'll join a secondary with Darius Slay, Avante Maddox, and not much else because of impending free agency or inexperience. So, uh, Ben, your thoughts on Trent McDuffie, how he would fit in a defense like the Eagles where we saw a lot of zone coverage, uh, especially early in the season. They played a little bit more man, especially on third downs as the season went on. Do you view him as a guy that can play inside and outside? Do you like him more inside? Uh, We haven't talked too much about McDuffie and, and your thoughts just on how he projects in the league. Yeah, I like him more as an outside zone corner. He's a guy that plays very physical, will come up and tackle the ball extremely well, will contribute to run support. Even a couple cat blitzes will get in there. He forced a fumble, I remember, chasing a play from the backside against Stanford. Very physical, imposing presence of corner there um, that I think is a bit of a ball of clay on how you want to use him. I think he could play press man. I think he could play the nickel if you wanted to. Can play the cover two. Can play the cover three bail stuff if you wanted them to. So I think adding just more younger, high-level athletes and versatile players to the defensive back room is really important. And we may be in a little bit of a changing of the guard on the back end of this Eagles team. Some guys on their way out trying to figure out who is the future, who are the future stars. And I think adding a corner or safety with one of these first three picks in the first round is a huge objective of Howie Roseman and Nick Sirianni. So I think adding guys like Dean, Ojabo, Trent McDuffie, that would be a huge haul for the defense and Jonathan Gannon. 
All right, let's get to uh, day two. And we're just real, real quick. There's no blurbs here, but round two, uh, Ryan has the Eagles taking Trey McBride, the tight end from Colorado State. You pair him with Dallas Goddard. And then in round three, the guy you talked about earlier, Illinois safety, Kirby Joseph. I do like the the, the scheme fit there for Kirby Joseph in kind of a zone-heavy scheme. Uh, I do like that fit. McBride, I think, would pair really well with Dallas Goddard with what he can do. I think they complement each other uh, pretty well. I think that Goddard's a little bit more dynamic, um, but McBride's got such a versatile skill set that he can do a little bit of everything too. So uh, you can really kind of change up your looks offensively if you have those two together. But interesting to kind of get your thoughts uh, on McBride and Kirby Joseph uh, and the potential fit here in Philadelphia. Yeah, McBride is a really interesting tight end and that he can play that traditional Y role and play next to a tackle, put his hand in the turf, block some defensive ends and make some tough catches on third down in the red zone. Really competitive at the catch point as well with those big soft mitts at 260 pounds. So having him and a Dallas Goddard together be really interesting. I think Goddard maybe has a little bit more vertical juice, a little bit more separation in his route running. But Trey McBride's ability to contribute in both phases is what will keep him on the field. And I think he'll be an excellent run blocker and then obviously capitalizing off play action like Nick Sirianni likes to uh, deploy with this offensive scheme. Kirby Joseph, I think one of the true center fielders of this class. So we'll see if he can maybe contribute to that split safety look of Jonathan Gannon, would probably fill more of the Rodney McLeod role than the Anthony Harris role. A little bit more of a high-low type of combo with those two. But Kirby Joseph in round three is how it's looking. Tons of ball skills, tons of production on the back end, very rangy player, maybe the rangiest on the back end. Now let's just see where else we can use him. All right, well, let's get to uh, just some other teams here that picked in this mock draft. Obviously, 31 other teams active as well. And we'll just kind of go round by round, just our favorite pick, our favorite kind of player team fit from each round. For me, in round one, uh, I'm really starting to feel like the Tyler Linderbaum to Dallas uh, pairing, I think it makes a ton of sense. And, uh, you know, we just had our, we had Nick Underhill on earlier in the show in the last segment uh, covering the blueprint for the Saints. If you go back to last year when we did that segment uh, and we talked about the Dallas Cowboys, I think that Tyler Linderbaum checks a lot of those boxes when you talk about uh, just the athleticism, the toughness, uh, even like the area of the country, uh, the, the age. I mean, like, there are so many different things when you look at Tyler Linderbaum and you say like, yeah, like, he makes a lot of sense for the Cowboys if he's there at 24. So um, to me, like uh, the thinking like, oh, maybe he'll fall to the to the, to the Bengals at 31 or so. To me, like I almost look at 24 as Linderbaum's floor when it's all said and done. I got news for you, Fran. If he's sitting there at 24, I'm trading a, a five, six and a seven if I'm the Bengals and moving up make four sure or five spots yeah, to make right. sure we get him. I just see uh, they need some more interior line help. They obviously brought in Alex Kappa and Ted Karras in free agency, but we love a mainstay center there and a young guy in front of Joe Burrow. One pick I'll go just after that Linderbaum at 24. I love Andrew Booth going to the Buffalo Bills at 25, but I think they're going to need some corner help opposite of Trey White. Tons of injuries last year. He's a guy that plays really good in that zone scheme, but I think he's at the place of man-to-man, his best football ahead of him. We talked about him earlier, just being a one-year player out there at Clemson for Brent Venables. He's a guy that's really athletic. Unfortunately, didn't get to test or do any workouts at the Combine or his pro days, uh, dealing with something, uh, I think, from the season, if I'm not mistaken there, Fran, just delete whatever injury conversation we're doing right now. But Andrew Booth, I think, adding to Sean McDermott's defense out there would be a great fit in the back end of round one. Uh, for me, going into round two, uh, a guy that I think makes a lot of sense uh, was for the New Orleans Saints, ironically enough, since we just talked with Nick uh, in the last segment. Jahan Dotson uh, at 49 to the Saints, I think makes a lot of sense uh, when you look at uh, just how 
number one, how good he is at the catch point. And I think that that could be something where uh, when we talked about like the body typing aspect of things, like, yeah, maybe he's a little short from that standpoint, but he makes up for it in other ways, which is what Nick talked about. And I think Dotson, uh, he, he definitely has that to his game in terms of uh, he's able to overcome any kind of physical limitation he has from like a size strength aspect. He's so good at the catch point, very similar to kind of like Devonte Smith in that way. Uh, Dotson to the Saints at 49. I think that would be viewed as a, a steal by most people, a, a sleeper pick, uh, Ben, mm-hmm. to kind of bring it all back uh, together full circle. Uh, what's a, a player team that you really like from round two? You know, there's Braz in the Saints roster right here. I mean, this is one of the tougher teams to project, uh, you know, what they're going to do in the draft and what yeah. they're going to do in 2022. Obviously, new head coach, not sure what the quarterback situation is. Where's Michael Thomas? Is Teron Armstead coming back? A lot of big time names kind of in flux and on the move. Uh, out of that New Orleans team, but uh, I'm going to go with a pick two picks earlier from the same school. And that's Jaquan Brisker going to the Washington commanders, who I think would be a really great fit in that defense out there for Ron Rivera, a guy that uh, I think needs that mainstay captain of the defense safety. They just moved on from Landon Collins. You know, the ha ha Dix experiment didn't really work out a few years earlier. I think, Jaquan Brisker, if he can fall to 47, which it's looking a little dire right now, if he's going to make it that far, right. he's much more of a back end of round one, early round two. Uh, but I think if the Washington commanders can get him at 47, I think that's going to be a really great fit and a good playmaking safety linebacker type for that team. All right. Last one for us. Uh, Best player team fit in round three for me, uh, looking at what the Las Vegas Raiders did, getting Wondell Robinson in this mock draft uh, at number 86 overall. You look at that receiving core, uh, obviously you lose Henry Ruggs uh, here this past season. So you need that injection of speed. You got to get that speed back in the offense. And Robinson, uh, he brings that uh, for sure in a, in a smaller package. Uh, but I think that this is a guy that can certainly take the top off. He's got that big play threat ability. So uh, Wondell Robinson, he falls to round three because of the frame, because of the body type questions. But I think when you look at it, uh, his speed is the kind of skill set they need in that offense to kind of really bring that whole receiving core together. Uh, what's a, a team fit you really like here in the third round? Well, I love seeing Perry and Winfrey go to the Packers. Well, he's a guy that I think is a vertical disruptor as a defensive tackle, which would be a great pair to Kenny Clark and Dean Lowry and uh, TJ Slayton and some of those guys that maybe don't have that first step quickness. Yep. You know, those guys that aren't the disruptive types, more of what I like to call the line of scrimmage dwellers. That's how Winfrey was used often at Oklahoma, and he feels like his best football is ahead of him. When he was given that green light to just go and shoot gaps and time the snap and get upfield, he destroyed backfields. And I think we saw that at Mobile, and we're really taken back with his ability and his first step and his ability just to get up the field and win as a pass rusher. So I think adding somebody like that as a three-tech next to Kenny Clark. Remember, they moved on from Kingsley Kiki uh, very surprisingly at the end of the season. So I think there's a big void in there next to Kenny Clark uh, in between Rashawn Gary and some of the edge rushers. Yeah, definitely some shuffling having to do with the salary cap and things like that with some of oh, the- yeah. Uh, that they've had to make. So uh, trying to find some of that production with some, uh, you know, smaller salary uh, rookies, I think makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, Ben, this was fun exercise uh, covering the sleepers, doing the mock draft. Uh, you'll be with us uh, early next week. Uh, me, you, Dane, will cover the running backs here uh, right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the draft mailbag. Good stuff there from Ben. Let's now get into our draft mailbag. And again, uh, the best way to get featured here in this segment is to head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a comment, and we'll answer your questions. We will break down your mock drafts. We will address whatever you bring to the table here, and we're going to start things off with Duker's Rule, who left a five-star review just with a comment, just saying, hey, 
That's, this is a must-listen for draft enthusiasts. So Dukers Rule, appreciate the five-star review. Thanks so much for the comment. Here's a question from Robo35, who left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, saying, thank you for all the work that you put in to help us enjoy this game. Which wide receivers in the draft would you feel comfortable throwing into an X receiver role? Or maybe a slightly different way to phrase this question, which receivers do you think could predominantly play X without sacrificing too much of their game? I know that Nick Sirianni, the Eagles head coach, likes to move guys around, but it could really help Jalen Hurts development if he has a boundary guy who can be regularly left in one-on-one situations. So, uh, Robo, I am glad that you couched that segment and you kind of rephrased it because, uh, and I don't think it's this is particularly Nick Sirianni. I think this is just around the NFL. This is football now, is that it's very rare now where you see t- teams where you have your receivers pegged as, this guy's the slot, this guy's the Z, this guy's the X, and we're moving on. That, that, to me, that's an archaic way, and it's changed over the last few years into this, but teams now, we talk about positionless football all the time. You're moving these guys around all over the field. It's very rare, especially in the NFL uh, and certainly in college football, where you see guys, they are locked in. This is the position they play in the formation. You're going to get all kinds of players moved around. And so uh, to me, if you're going to play X and you're going to do it a predominant part of the time, the big thing that you're looking for, is this is a guy that's got to win one-on-one. And there are a lot of different ways to win one-on-one. You can do it with speed. You can do it with technique. You can do it with size and strength. But you have to be able to win one-on-one. And you have to do it against press coverage because when you're an X receiver, you're up on the line of scrimmage, so you're going to have corners that are up in your face. You're going to, you don't have as much room to be able to operate. So you've got to be able to, uh, to beat press, and you've got to be able to create your own separation. Or, I should say, you have to be able to win one-on-one. And so that's really what it comes down to. And I think when you look, uh, that's why the big-bodied receivers have typically been thrown into that, because you say, all right, well, this is a guy that, uh, if, all, you know, if all else fails, he's got that ability to go up and win one-on-one. And so that's where you can get into the Drake Londons. That's where you can get into the Traylon Burks, right? Uh, I would say with Traylon Burks, remember at Arkansas, saw he was moved all around the formation they did all kinds of things to be able to get him the football but I would say if you get away from a couple of those big bodied guys actually I will throw one more in there because I think George Pickens from Georgia he's kind of the prototype he is the traditional X receiver at 6'3 just under 200 pounds he's got long arms he moves well so he's got that ability to create some separation but also can go up and win as well Uh, he's got some of those ball winner traits so I think when you look at Pickens uh, he would be another guy that I would throw in there but uh, then you start looking around you're like all right, well Garrett Wilson much like what you said with Devontae Smith. He also he played some X for the Eagles this year. Garrett Wilson at Ohio State, he can play some X. John Mechie from Alabama, he could play some X. Uh, you look at Jahan Dotson, he can play some X. Jameson Williams from Alabama, he's got the ability to play some X, right? So uh, really, again, it's going to come team by team. Some teams are going to focus on it a little bit more than others. But at the end of the day, can you win one-on-one, whether that's with speed, technique, quickness, catch point, you have to be able to find a way to be able to win one-on-one, uh, and teams are going to move these guys all around. But it's a really good question, Robo. Thanks so much for leaving it there on our Apple Podcast page. One more here from Cheesehead, who left a five-star review, saying a very well informative and well-put-together show. Appreciate that, Cheesehead. Uh, is it wrong for me to think that Drake London, the USC wide receiver, looks like a rich man's Alan Lazard? Besides Traylon Burks, do you see any other players from Arkansas getting drafted this year? So, Two-part question. I'm going to address the Arkansas one first. Uh, Traylon Burks, obviously a great player from Arkansas. There are a couple of other players to keep an eye on, and the two that stand out most to me, I would say would be John Ridgway, the nose tackle. He transferred in from a smaller school, I believe off the top of my head. I believe it was Illinois State, uh, but I could be wrong on that. But he came in uh, as a super senior this year, played for Arkansas, was a starter, was really productive over the course of his career, but did a really good job in the middle of a really feisty defense. We've been talking about that Arkansas front uh, over the course of this season. 
And when you look at Ridgeway, he was a big reason why. He's really he's long, he's stout, uh, he's, he's built a little bit differently than your prototypical nose tackle just because he's a little bit taller and broader, uh, but he's a really active player. I love his motor, uh, I love his physicality. So that's John Ridgeway. And then also in the secondary, Montaric Brown, the senior corner, uh, was all SEC this year, had a bunch of picks. His ball skills do show up. He had a couple of really impressive interceptions. I actually studied him over the summer as a junior, and he flashed uh, in that realm as well. So I would say look at John Ridgeway and Montaric Brown from the Razorbacks. Now to the first part of your question, which is it wrong for me to think that Drake London looks like a rich man's Alan Lazard. Now, Alan Lazard, when he was coming out of Iowa State, he was a, a big-bodied slot. He was a he. A lot of people felt like he. Hey, this guy needs to move to tight end. Hakeem Butler played that same role, and a lot of people had Hakeem Butler in the first round. He ended up going in the fourth round and ended up making the conversion to tight end. Lazard has been able to stick at receiver, but he's used in a very specific way in that Green Bay offense. Does a lot of the dirty work. He's a really good blocker. Works over the middle of the field. He's a really consistent possession threat. So. This is, the, this is the discussion around Drake London. This is the debate around Drake London. It's a fascinating one, and it's tough to argue for or against either side. I think you can argue really good arguments on for both ways. Drake London is a guy that before this season, that was the role he played, the same role that Alan Lazard and, and Akeem Butler for Iowa State. That's what he did at USC. He was a slot receiver, big possession threat, get him down the seam. He can win those jump balls in the middle of the field, and that's how he won. Now, when Amon Ross St. Brown graduates, he moves on to the NFL. Drake London slides outside. He played on the far left of the formation, and he was super, super productive on the outside. And you saw him uh, try and get away and separate from corners. You saw him try and do more receiver-like things, not, ne not necessarily just be that big-bodied possession guy in the middle of the field. That's why you see some people have him as wide receiver one, potential top 10, top 12 pick in this draft. Others are going to agree with you, uh, Cheesehead, and say, yeah, well, I see him as more of a big-bodied slot. I see him as a potential tight end conversion, right? So that's the guy, that's going to be the conversation around Drake London. Fair or not, that's the conversation. It's a, it's a really fun debate. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that it's not it's not wrong for you to think that. Uh, some people, there are a lot of really smart people that would agree with you. It, it's going to be a really fun debate, and it's going to be fun to be able to follow Drake London early in his career and just see how that plays out. And another guy, just a big-bodied player uh, that can go up and win at the catch point. Some really good tape uh, this year as a junior. So uh, good stuff there from Cheesehead, from Robo, from Dukers. Thanks so much for all of your five-star reviews over on Apple Podcasts. And, again, that is the best way to reach us us here on the show. 400th episode uh, in the books here for the Journey of the Draft podcast. The first podcast we ever did here with the Philadelphia Eagles. And I, I can remember uh, plain as day, actually sitting exactly where I'm sitting now. The studio is a little bit different when we did our first show. Uh, and you know, it's come a long way in the years since that point. But uh, thanks so much to Ben, to Nick, uh, and of course to Greg for joining us here this week on the show. We'll be back early next week. Myself, Ben Fennell, Dane Brugler. Also have another special guest in line for early next week where we'll be breaking down running backs right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by Life Brand.